Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I think it would be great to get started just speaking about your background, um, because you do have a really interesting background that covers quite a bit of ground in the water sector. Yeah, yeah. So most recently, I've spent about 10 years with Marigali Basin Authority. In fact, so I joined when they gave the permission, and then a few months after that, it turned into the authority. So in that, that reform, in that reform world, water reform, start of the authority. But I've got quite a mixed background. Um, so I started off in the agriculture sector uh, with an agriculture degree and then worked in land care, uh, nature conservation fields for a bit, um, research management, and then from that I came into this world, which is more the water, water governance, water policy, water reform world. In fact, I sort of got myself more a natural resource source manager water management aspect, uh, yeah. because it's, that's been my background, you know, water hasn't just been the sphere that I've worked in. Uh, you're, you've recently returned from um, the Mekong Basin, where you were for five months posted as the uh, water policy specialist, yeah. and I'm just wondering if you would share with us some of the insights that you gained affecting both water management and, um, and hydropower, which is a huge issue yes. for the Mekong, yes. uh, based on that experience. Yeah, in fact, you probably you stole my, my first three answers were going to be hydropower, hydropower, and <laughs> hydropower, because it really, it, yeah, hydropower just dominates the Mekong. Yes. I, think, I don't think anyone can talk about the Mekong without talking about hydropower. And there's already many, many hydropower dams built throughout the Mekong, including its tributaries. And many, many more plans to be built, including yeah, many, on the mainstream. Many, many. Of course, you know, the big challenge is on the mainstream Mekong, where it was, it was relatively dam free, whereas now that's changing as well. So that was my role, partly with the Mekong River Commission, that got fulfilled there, um, because there was a proposal to build another dam. But, you know, I think in some ways, yes, dams have many positives, and they don't tend to be talked about, but region needs development and hydropower provides an opportunity for, for development. So there's many positives, but from a water management perspective, that's where many of the issues arise, the negatives in the sense of uh, change to flow, change to flow regime, uh, impacts on sediment, I think even impacts on community members and communities that live adjacent to the dam, the dam being built or proposed to be built or has been built, you know, there's impediments to uh, transport or uh, shipping on, on the main channel, for example. Um, so those things, you know, are real tangible issues that need resolution or need policy, water policy, water governance interventions in them to, to try and get to some resolution. And there's never a perfect answer to these, particularly as you get more and more dams, I think, you know, each problem multiplies, you know, it's, it's, it's not 
I mean, one dam is bad, but two dams doesn't mean twice as bad. It could be you know, three times or four times as bad, depending on its location and impact. So these cumulative impacts of dams in the region, I think, have, are sort of playing out in, in the water governance, water policy world. Yeah, I think about um, two things as you speak. I think the first is about fisheries. Yeah. and impacts to people's livelihoods. They survive yes. off of the fisheries. A lot of people survive yes, in, that, right. in that basin. Yes. And when you put in dams, you're directly impacting their food supply as well. Yes, that's right. And there have been many studies done on that. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the assessments are that there are going to be massive impacts on fish production mm -hmm. uh, as in declines. It's also, I was very surprised to learn, it's, it's one of the most biodiverse rivers in the world. It's something like species of, of fish within the Mekong, which is huge, you know, massive, massive even, diversity. There's elusive dolphins, right? There's, you know, in, in some places, that's my understanding, that there's some relative, uh, let's say, strong points of where, they, where they're found, mm. yeah, with, with impediments, with barriers being put along the river. But yeah, I think it's, it's not just in places of iconic species, it's wildlife, um, but also in terms of people, you know, so there's many dams that are built that don't have, say, fish passage, um, ship, ship ladders, um, and so that's, you know, it's the transport corridor that uh, was existing but no longer exists, so alternatives have to be found to get people moving up and down rivers. So, yeah, I think that these are sort of problems that um, probably haven't been dealt with in the past, but incrementally getting, coming to the surface more and more. Mm. I'm also uh, reflecting on development more broadly. In the Mekong, they look around and they say, well, we have water. Water is a resource, exactly. So that's a resource, that's right. yes. and that's yes. how we can drive our yes. power yes. and, exactly. and meet, the, meet the economic needs. Yes, yes, yes. And that's a natural advantage, I mean, I think, yeah. Yeah, you can't blame anyone for not at all. And, and, and in a sense, if it's done correctly, dams can be one of the most yes. environmentally sustainable and appropriate solutions for addressing power needs. Uh, but I'm wondering, when the hydropower decision-making moves forward, is, it how, is there a general framework and a strategic approach that reflects the cooperation between the countries of the Mekong? Yes. Well, well that's a good question. So, you know, I think there's, there's extremes of frameworks or different types of frameworks. So there is the Mekong River Agreement, which the lower Mekong countries have signed, which is the basis that the Mekong River Commission then works under. Um, and that, you know, that, that allows the member countries to come to the bargaining table mm -hmm. or the negotiating table. So that, that's there at least. And Australian um, Water Partnership at, the, at this very moment is funding uh, a person to help develop Strategy, sustainable hydro, hydro dams, or sustainable hydropower strategy. There, looking at dams primarily. So you know that's something we're helping with. We're trying to get this overarching framework or a strategy for successive uh, ventures in dam building. So we're trying to get you know, at least we're supporting some of that mechanism. I'm still a bit of a novice. I was only there five months, but um, I think that is one of the things that. 
is missing is that's a, a cooperative framework that allows the full member countries to develop their water resources in some sort of coordinated fashion. I mean, that's a challenge anywhere in the world, though, right? I mean, transboundary water governance is tough. It's yeah. very difficult. Um, but, yeah, I, think, I don't think the existing frameworks are rigid enough in the Mekong to perhaps provide a cohesive or uniform approach to them. Each country is, is sovereign and has their own rights, so they, yeah. they are able to do what they want to do in that sense. As we all know, rivers <laughs> don't, don't respect uh, man-made boundaries, so that uh, the, the Mekong River Commission or that sort of platform, I think, is as important now as it was two decades back when it was formed. I'm, I'm hoping you could speak a little bit about that, and also maybe reflecting upon your your experience with the Murray Darling Commission as well as the authority, um, yeah. if you could draw any parallels between that sort of process of governance, because both both agencies represent institutions that have been established to facilitate yes, yes. knowledge sharing, transboundary cooperation, getting the right people to the table to have the right conversations. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping you can share maybe some insights based on your field experience and sure. prior experience about yeah. that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the Minimum River Commission is very much like the Murray Darling Basin Commission used to be. Uh, so it's, it's a federated model. It's a federated government comprised of multiple states and their representatives. So the, the Mekong River Commission operates in the same way. They had a big restructure almost two years back, a year and a half ago, which essentially the model now is much more decentralized. So it's, it's a smaller Mekong River Commission as a secretariat, and then the four member countries will pick up a bigger and bigger share of the function. So that's been quite a big reform from a basin management perspective, I think. And it's been a big, I think it's fair to say it was a big shock to, to, that, uh, to, to that cooperative model of managing water resources. Because it has meant downsizing in staff and downsizing in capacity. And so while so there's been a sharp decline for the secretariat, the four member countries then have to pick up Slack, for want of a better word. Yeah. And, uh, each of the four countries have different capabilities to do that. They're not all on a level playing field in their technical capabilities or their capacity to, to undertake those functions. So, yeah, I think there'll be a lag. You know, that's, that's probably one of the things, uh, a, a challenge in terms of water governance in that region is to, is to get those skill sets up. Resources, uh, particularly collectively. I mean, they'll all be able to do it within their patch, I think, reasonably well over time. But it's getting that uh, sort of cooperative model back up and, and working effectively would be a challenge, I think. We don't have enough people to do the amount of work that's required because water management is such a tremendous challenge. Yeah. Uh, but that is exacerbated in countries, mm -hmm. yeah, particularly yeah. in the Mekong. Basically, in a lot of other countries, um, that the yeah. AWP is working, and yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's a ubiquitous challenge. That's right, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, you have that sort of 
conflict of, of, of capacity and conflict of sovereignty that's yeah. playing out through this Absolutely. new reform. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah, you're right. It's not unique to the new community. No. It's anywhere. Oh, it's it's everywhere. Issues. Exactly. That's right. yeah, yeah, I think that's a, It'll probably always be a challenge. We haven't mastered it here either, I don't think, in the NPP. In the NPP, because um, as we see, you know, the states still try and, you know, I guess, manage their resources how they they see in their best interest. But we, we still see playing out almost on a weekly basis the rivalry between upstream and downstream. Yeah, and it's a process. I don't think you're ever going to reach right. yes. the yes. end goal of you know yes. perfect. Management or cooperation. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think you hit it on the head by saying it's a process, and that's why I sort of say I think the Economic Commission uh, does provide the mechanism for those processes to be discussed and brought into the table. The federated model prevents it going too far in, in, in sort of an authoritarian sense, or yes. a better word, or in a, in a decision making sense. That's right. <laughs> unanimously for a decision. Mm. But yeah, I think that the, that's one thing we have in Australia, at least, and under the NPPA. Those mechanisms exist in, well, through the authority and the state, you know, the cooperative model of coming to the table and negotiating and, and I guess, bargaining. Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's hard to compare with Australia. And I think, you know, so, so it, it happens in, in each of the member countries in different capabilities. Mm. Uh, Thailand has very strong yes. uh, modelling capability, for example, in information and data management mm. capacity. So their ability to say, for example, to, to understand their resource um, is be quite different, say, for Laos or Cambodia who have to build their capabilities. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that's what, that's what I was alluding to a bit earlier, that each, you know, each country has is that they're not all on the level playing field, and that's one of the challenges, even even though there is a common platform for discussion and negotiation. Yeah. Each country has slightly different capabilities and capacities to, to I guess, have their voice at that, at that negotiating table. Yeah, and I think, you know, Laos is sort of going full steam ahead with, with damn development because, I mean, they haven't hidden the fact that energy is... Hydropower energy is their sort of almost number one uh, political or economic tool for development. Uh, you know, so so they're, they're not holding back in that sense, even though they, they are, let's say, border management capability might be less than Thailand's. They're still very much yeah. capable of developing their water resources and, and are doing it. You had spoken earlier about um, the cooperative mechanisms within the kind of realm of economic development that seem to be prevalent maybe throughout the Mekong. And I'm wondering if you can kind of explore that a little bit and, and explain that because it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I wasn't so much suggesting that there is a that there is a joint mechanism. So I mean, the, so Mekong River Commission provides mechanism for for dialogue and I guess mm -hmm. for problem 
sharing and problem resolution. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's that's it. Sort of comes back to that sovereignty issue that we were talking about earlier. Each of the countries does what it thinks is in its best interest economically, as as does every country, and, and as as they should. From a water resource management perspective, uh, I guess I've always been of the view that water managing water because it doesn't respect boundaries like other resources, just like forests and forests mm. don't move. <laughs> um, water moves, and, and therefore there is every every country or every jurisdiction that needs to give up something of others, and I think that's, in my view, water is perhaps one of the most challenging of the natural resources, natural resources to manage for that reason. You have to give up some part of your self-interest for the for the greater, for the greater good. You know, the, the saying that um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So it's almost like that, that you, know, you can view the resource as your own and what passes in through your where you can say, well, look, this is, this is something of a broader resource, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not something to be managed unilaterally. And it's real cha it's challenging to do. Again, we haven't, I don't think we've, we're an ideal model here either. You know, mm. it's, it's a difficult space. So giving up what might be considered your share for someone else is, mm. is what's required, but really difficult to do because you're going to have to make decisions about how much do we give up for the benefit of someone else? Yeah. Yeah. But that's, it's so critical, I think, in water management to do that. And with the AWP work, is that happening through the Mekong River Commission or in conjunction with or um, through the governments? I'm just yeah. curious how it's It's, it's through the governments, which, yeah, so interestingly, so it's, it's individual governments who request help, and that's very much the Australian Water Partnership model, of yes. course, is that driven that you know, the country needs to sort of approach us in a sense for a service. Um, so the Mekong River Commission, uh, we don't deal too much with other than, you know, I was there in the policy capacity and we're providing some assistance in the hydropower strategy, mm -hmm. sustainable hydropower strategy. So there's some limited influence that we have with the Mekong River Commission in terms of that sort of sense of approaching things as a framework, mm -hmm. but otherwise it's very much piecemeal, country by country. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the Mekong River Commission really needs, does need assistance in my view, given the restructure that they had a year and a half ago. So, um, I, I suspect they would probably relish more help. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess it's, if they're watching, then should ask why. Yes. <laughs> I'll do a sales speech for We're Australia. here, so we're approaching. Happy to help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. In the beginning, you were talking about the multi-sectoral experience that you have, and I'm wondering if you have any comments about approaches that you've seen to be quite successful in other sectors um, that potentially could be brought into the water sector as they do all intersect within this natural resources. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question, actually. I, um, I actually think the water sector is perhaps the most 
multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary. At least, and that's my experience here in, in the Murray Valley Basin Authority where I work, that we really were able to bring multiple skill sets together. Uh, and I think one of the strengths that we have developed on decade or so is, is evidence-based policy. Mm -hmm. So it's your investments in scientific research, scientific knowledge, scientific understanding. Turn that into policy. It's not to say we're perfect at it. I mean, ultimately, policymakers have to make a decision. It's a process. Uh, it's, it's a like process, that's right, <laughs> yes. Um, but having said, I think of the research that we capacity say hydrology and modelling, you know, they're sort of well-founded, but we've really made big advances in there. Um, ecology and hydrology, you know, bringing those disciplines together. Even meteorology, you know, understanding flora, stream flora, forecasting, and what that might mean in terms of environmental flows and where to, you know, where to um, put environmental flows. So that sort of practical day-to-day -day management multidisciplinary skills. So I think that we're, we're, it's almost been forced on us to bring multiple skills together and we've learned by doing. Um, so I think that the water sector is very advanced on that. And, you know, it's one of the things I would encourage new starters in the water world uh, is to think about maybe getting a couple of skill sets under their belt as opposed to being a specialist in any one particular area. That's not to say that you shouldn't, <laughs> that there isn't a need for specialists, but um, I think increasingly multiple skills or transdisciplinary skills mm -hmm. are really are going to be really important, even from a career prospect, I think, mm -hmm. for young starters. Um, my recommendation would be get multiple skills. You know, even GIS technology, for example, is really coming in, into its own. So Use GIS to help decision making so you know, people who have GIS skills and can help policy yeah. formulation at the same time really, you know, I think would stand out in, in the career as opposed to going to someone who's a GIS specialist, you get them to do some analysis for you, then you take what they've given you and then you develop policy. Yeah. You, know, you can do a bit of that technical work yourself. I just think it's a, it's a wonderful strength to. Yeah, I think it's very easy to sort of say, you know, so you get your university degree and then you get your job and then you say, right, I'm a, I'm a modeler. Mm. And then you stay in modeling. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but people who are able to sort of branch out into some other skills or at the same time build their skills in some other area, I think just really stand out in the water governance, water management world because they're able to just conceptualize things beyond singular discipline. So don't read that as, you know, don't be a specialist. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on how your brain works, because we need yeah, amazing yeah, specialists that's right. as well yes, in, exactly. this, in this that's sector, right. and if that just yes, really, yes. you know, lights your fire, then don't hold back, right? right. But yeah, I think I'm, you know, maybe I'm sort of being self, a bit defensive about my own background, that I do think it's been multidisciplinary. And that that's helped me. You know, I started by saying I'm a 
jack of all trades. Mm. It's I've dabbled in lots of different things, but but I think that's a it's a good skill set to have in natural resource management and in particular water management. Um, but it doesn't it, you don't sort of actively see people it's, it's, uh, recruiting for transdisciplinary skills. Mm. It's still an emerging area. I think and even universities tend to produce specialists as struggle to say you know, what, what is a transdisciplinary and how does one become, you know, yes. become recognized as a, as a multidisciplinary As we try and, I think as we understand systems and systems management, you're having much more systemic approaches to managing problems. I mean, water is just an absolutely classic <laughs> complex problem and managing it from a systems perspective. And so skills and having transdisciplinary skills are really marketable and, and things that uh, are an aspect that you know, maybe people should consider yeah. in their career path at least. And you know, again, if you sort of come back to the natural resource management world, so we're managing water, but I think everyone knows you can't manage water independent of the landscape that it sits in. You know, so management of forests, for example, management of agricultural lands, etc., all intrinsically linked to the outcomes you're trying to get in terms of water management. So it gets more and more complex, I guess, as you scale out into the basin, into the landscape. Walls. But the, the, those, it just reinforces the need to manage you know, from a systems perspective. Make sure you have multiple skills, not even at least multiple skills within an agency or Platform, if I can mm -hmm. use that word, you, know, you don't just want one singular discipline helping you solve some natural resource management problem. And sociology is probably a classic. You know, there's increasingly more and more demand for sociologists. But people are at the center of all these things that we're trying to solve. And that's one thing I, you know, I guess I'd like to say that perhaps one of the challenges in the Mekong is trying to get much more community participation in the governance world. I think we, we do it relatively well here in Australia. Again, I wouldn't say we're perfect, but the land care model served us well, the catchment management model has served Australia well, where you do get community participation or local level involvement in decision making. And I think in the Mekong that's, that's an area that I would suggest is probably putting more resources and trying mm. to get local level or community level input into natural resource management, into water governance. Because it doesn't happen. So it's, it's partly you know, the, the political models are different, the governance models are different. Mm -hmm. um, but as people get, I guess, I use the word marginalised, you know, that's so you put it down, but there are people who get displaced and there's active policies in these countries to, dis to relocate people. How do they then have a say in where a dam is built or where they get relocated to? What sorts of livelihood opportunities mm -hmm. should they have? Can they have? If and when they're going to get relocated, so that I think that's a real a, a challenge. Also, their their local knowledge probably could provide quite a bit of benefit that's right. to yeah, better yeah, exactly. decision making that's right. because yes. if they know yes. that a, a fishery, for example, 
exists in one part of the yes. river or there's yeah. some sort of ecological value or you know mm. something then mm. they can inform this right exactly the process yes. Yes. so i think we always sort of talk about governance as a top-down thing yeah. and the holy grail perhaps and governance is a bottom-up approach yes and as i said I, mean, I don't think we've cracked it either for that matter in australia but we're 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 more participatory in that sense we, we do have mechanisms for Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to speak about or bring up? Um, I love the water topic, even though I'm sort of only 12 years into it or so, you know, specifically in water. Um, yeah, it's, such a, it's, a, it's a wonderfully rich world, and I find it both enjoyable and frustrating. <laughs> it's one of those things, you know, where it has so many problems, but it can also just it can energize you because of people you interact with and the skill sets you interact with. And, you know, I have to say my, my Mekong River Commission experience was fantastically rich because of the, the wonderful diversity of people that were that comprised the Mekong River Commission, you know, from four countries plus a number of expats that were there as well. It's just you don't get that so much here in Australia. I mean it's you get people who are from diverse backgrounds, but you know Mekong River Commission is truly sort of multicultural because of people from their respective countries are mm. coming together in a common platform. It's a wonderful yeah, place to work for, for the richness and the diversity of views, diversity of skills. So yeah, I guess I'll maybe end off by saying that was a, a real learning for me and a, and a really rich experience to, to work in the basin. Yeah. I think it's because we're all aligned together yeah. towards solving this, this that's right. The systemic yes. challenge of, yes. of you know water management and yes. and more broadly the sustainable development goals and, and the needs I think are just getting bigger and bigger. I mean water right. continues to be one of those conflicting you know, I guess a, um, issues of conflict. You know, the, the, the management of water is not easy. It is complex. And everyone has a vested interest. I always say that you know. You can manage forests, for example, but um, if you ask someone, you know, how do we manage that forest, they, they may or they may not have the view. Whereas water, because it's so intrinsic to life, everyone has a view, you know, from the local fisherman to the farmer mm -hmm. um, to government officials, you know, everyone has a vested interest in water because everyone can relate to it in some capacity and therefore has a view. Whereas in other sort of natural resource management sectors, you, know, so, um, you, can, you can leave some people outside of the debate potentially, whereas in order everyone's in the Everyone has a view, that's yeah. right. And then it's you know, people who manage, have to then manage the resource, have to take those views into account and yeah. find some clear path through it if, if there ever is such a thing. <laughs> yeah. But that's what makes it interesting. Yes. Linked with the, the kind of transdisciplinary approach, it's there's so much you can always learn. In yeah, the sector. yes. And just yes. when you're never going to ever master it all because there's just so much. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. That's so right. broad exactly. and inclusive. Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, Australia's had a long history of water reform, and each time it is based on new learning. Mm. So, 
it's a new experience. And I, I don't see that ever stopping. Kini is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Kini connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at kini.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.